Welcome to Prestigious Minds, where we talk about businessmen, entrepreneurs, and inventors and what they did that separated them from the rest. I'm Jeremiah, and I'm joined today with my co-host Rob, where we have been discussing John D. Rockefeller and how he grew his business and what he was remembered for. Before we jump back into it, if you enjoy the show and you want to learn more, you can sign up for updates about upcoming projects and news relating to prestigious minds on our website. The link will be in the show notes below. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, or we will eventually be posting a trivia question that will give you a chance to be shout out on the show at P Minds Pod. Now, let's jump into John D. Rockefeller Part 2. Jeremiah, back to our discussion. So I believe we left off with Rockefeller starting his his oil refining uh, business and and how he was going to be the biggest oil producer in America, perhaps mm. in the world. Yeah. So technically, started in eighteen sixty seven, right? Eighteen sixty eight. And after a few years in the partnership, they decided to create a trust. Now, I'm, it, a trust in the form of the fact that they gave the company a name outside of their personal names. So it, it was uh, Andrews, Rockefeller, and Flagler that originally held this along with uh, Rockefeller's brother, William. And so they eventually decided to, what you would call, well, I guess I wouldn't call it incorporating back then. A corporation wasn't a thing. They, they, they came up in 1870. They dissolved the original name, started Standard Rule in 1870, with uh, Rockefeller being the primary holder of the shares. So he, hold, he held a quarter percent. So he was the controlling partner. Um, this is very similar. So in today you can have a private company that still has a board. So today, you would have a private company. And relevant to something that is going on similar to this right now is Elon buying Twitter. Not going to dive into that whole conversation, but Elon has taken the company private from a public. And something I always thought was very fascinating about this that I didn't know until I started listening to reports about it is you you still have a board, a controlling board that would have shares in the company, but they're not private. Like they're private. They're not public. They're not publicly traded. Yeah. So you can have a board of just one member or a max of 50, which I guess you would say for a corporation is basically um, shareholders. If it wasn't a corporation, like an, like if it was just a regular company, then they would be partners. And you divide those shares up, not evenly, but you would divide them up based on the investment of the partners, board members. So when Rockefeller and Andrews and Flagler started Standard Oil, this is what they did. So you have 1870, and... They are beginning to march on consolidating the oil industry. 
Now, when it comes to consolidating the early oil industry, you would ask a very obvious question. How did he do it? Right? And there are a few key factors I would say that you need to talk about. And I also am pulling some of this information from a book called Titan, The Life of John D. Rockefeller Sr. by Ron Chernow. And very in-depth biography, probably the best one over Rockefeller, published in the 90s. And if you want to learn more about that, I would highly recommend reading that book. We're going to hit some high points and dive more into understanding how the his uh, tactics worked back then and what it meant and why they worked where today they may not necessarily work in the same way or at all. Um, transportation was the single most important factor in Rockefeller building his oil empire. I would say so, because you, you were still in cart and buggy, right? And you, I mean, train or horse is how you transported things. And steam. Well, uh, steamships, like steam power yeah. boats. I guess you did have more steam power going up the canals and rivers, right? Yeah, so most cities were built on a river because the river was the fastest way to transport things before oh. the railroads even. Uh, you know, boats, ships, been around for thousands of years at this point. So, we talked about how the Civil War expanded the railroads and you have all these people and whenever we were talking about Rockefeller using the railroads we have to we you have to understand that Rockefeller saw the opportunity to use the railroads to grow his empire by taking his product outside of the city from where it was where the crude oil was pulled out of the ground to where it was refined in Cleveland, then where it was shipped off to any other city that needed the refined like the refined products. Railroads ruled the all industry at right now. Your your richest man at the time, Commodore Vanderbilt, you may have heard of him, he was a was a railroad business magnate. And this was in the 1850s, 1860s, when railroad expansion and, and the urban centers were growing. Rockefeller realized that if he could ship things cheaper, he would have more money on the table. I mean, this is true today. I would say one of the, your largest expenses when it comes to any product that you produce is transportation, whether that be a service or a widget that you produce in a factory or at your own house and you ship it in the mail. Shipping's not cheap, and when you're shipping a lot of things, it's definitely not cheap. So what Rockefeller ended up doing was he realized that if he could get a cheaper rate, he would make more money. That seems a pretty basic idea, right? Right. One way that he did this was producing his own oil barrels. He made his own oil barrels? Yes. So this isn't what you think of in terms of steel barrels today. Back then, crude oil was shipped in oak barrels, like whiskey, 
is used today and back then, but they used wooden barrels to ship oil. Wow. That'd be a weird shipment to get mixed up, you know? Yeah, and there was actually even a fee. So they ship by weight, obviously, and there was even a calculation that they used in shipping that would account for the leakage of the barrels. (laughs) Because, you know, if you lost product during the transportation process, your load was lighter. And so they had a calculation that they would use to calculate the loss so that you weren't overpaying for a full barrel when by the time it got to its destination, it may not be completely full. That's pretty fascinating to think about. Um, It also shows you how common it was. In order for them to have their own barrels, Rockefeller, so they originally were paying two fifty dollars a barrel because they were buying them. $2.50. Yes. And he saw, he's like, well, what, what if we made it ourselves? And so he hired his own coopers. That's what, they, what the, that's what the barrel makers were called. And bought a forest. A whole forest. A whole forest. Or, or plot of land that had a bunch of trees on it. Would harvest his own wood, hired his own coopers. They would refine the, the, the wood. They would build their own barrels. And he was able to produce his own barrels at a cost of $1.40. What a deal, what a value. Yeah, extreme. Now, this isn't all. This is not all. There's also tank cars. You you may have you may have seen those today on the railroads. Tank cars were not widely used. They weren't even widely made back then. And Rockefeller realized obviously tank cars are way more secure. They're made out of metal. They don't leak. They also have a higher carrying capacity and they're less prone to falling off. Uh, a railroad car because they were a railroad car. So more secure, better volume, uh, better product retention. Right. Less yeah. weight. Yeah, less weight, less contamination. Um, well, when we say contamination of your finished product, I guess. Um, so he also invested in building his own tank cars. He ended up, ended up having a fleet of like a thousand tank cars. And what this helped him do was leverage his ability to own these tank cars and and just short of owning the railroad, he was able to own his own shipping containers. So this is like, this is the same idea as if you go to the post office and you can buy a postal box, right? Well, you have to pay for the postal box and then you have to pay for them to ship it. Right. Well, he owned the boxes, essentially, and so he would just pay for the shipping cost. So what what do you get when you ship in bulk? When you ship in bulk, yeah, you should get a. I would think you would get a discount because you're, you know, you're paying more volume, or you know, the company that you're paying uh, can have a large, a larger sum, um, and they don't have variances in who who needs. You know, if you have a smaller quantity, you have variance in how much you're going to sell that month. But if you ship in volume, you know you're going to get a set amount. Yeah, inconsistency of shipments, right? Right. Because you're a business. Well, Rockefeller was producing a lot of oil. He was the largest refiner in Cleveland. And he was able to use his large volume of shipments and guaranteeing these shipments to the railroads to get favorable rates 
and rebates. Now, we will not dive too deep into every single little aspect of business uh, ventures and tactics that Rockefeller used, but this is worthy of mentioning because this was a monumental moment in Standard Oil history. So around this time, the early 1870s, in April, there was a plan that was hatched. Now, this wasn't a plan by Rockefeller. This was a plan suggested by Flagler where they would create a shell company called the South Improvement Company. And this company was a partnership between oil refiners and the railroads to get favorable treatment. This favorable treatment distilled down was they would get up to a 50% rebate on all their shipments. 50%. 50% rebate on all their shipments. Not only that, they would also get a 50% up to a 50% rebate on their competitor shipments that were not a part of this company. So if I'm a part of the, the SIC and you're not, and you ship something on that railroad and it's the same product as me, I I get 50% and you're like, well, how does that make sense? Because the company still has to pay to ship the product. Well, I'm glad you asked there, Rob. They would up the rates of the people who weren't in the SIC. You know, basic math. So, what you're telling me is that their competition is they raise the rate, the railroad rates, to ship their product just so they could get half of it. So, was this to make money or was this to kind of push the competition into maybe consolidating or selling, perhaps? So... So this is the deal that is going down. Like this is like the the terms and conditions of their agreement that they're they're hashing out was the railroads would raise the rates on all non-members. And this was I from my point of view would be to cover the cost of the rebates. And for Rockefeller, he was more you could call him a stand, a, a, a bystander. And he knew about it, and he claimed a little bit of ignorance because he wasn't the one directly dealing with these negotiations, but he knew. And like you just mentioned, it was to make money, but it was it was also to retroactively ended up causing what was what came to be known as the Cleveland Massacre. Now, this wasn't an actual massacre of people. It was of oil refining businesses. There were... Um, 28 refiners, independent refiners. And within a year of the SIC, there were 26 that got bought by Rockefeller. Wow. So, but, okay, so let's not put the cart before the horse yet. The SIC never actually made a single transaction. What ended up happening was this was in Pennsylvania. And... Um, well, it was part of it was in Pennsylvania because this is where the, most of the crude oil at the time was being produced, and this was also affecting that. Well, the Pennsylvania legislation revoked the charter of the SIC because there was a bunch of protests going on because the rates got leaked that they were going to be skyrocketing, and the the SIC like talks and negotiations, I guess you could say, they, that got leaked. 
to the local press and got out that they were getting favorable treatment and people were like, that's not really fair because you can't upcharge us and then cut other people's prices. And the backlash was so bad that the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was the main contender in this, ended up pulling the pulling like backing down and pulling this. So the SIC never actually made a transaction and it never actually was a full company. It was a company for like three months, technically. Never actually made a transaction. Rockefeller never got a single rebate. Never got anything out of it. But what he did manage to get was this scared, and I think this was somewhat unintentional. This was just a byproduct. Scared refiners in in the areas, uh, you know, in in the greater Cleveland area. They're like, I can't afford that. Because you have to think, the process back then was super inefficient. You had tons of waste. And... Some of these refineries actually weren't really making a profit at all. They were just trying but failing. And so Rockefeller bought a lot of defunct plants that he ended up shutting down because they just weren't even worth rebuilding. But what this did was it scared them to sell. And Rockefeller, what you would think would be, well, I'm just going to go in and buy them for the cheapest, you know, pennies on the dollar. He actually did not do that. He brought in people and they would estimate the value. And he normally paid, he would pay more than double what the actual refinery is worth. And he would offer the owners of these refineries two options, obviously a cash buyout, or you can get standard oil stock. Now, if you can predict the future or retrospectively look in the past, standard oil, if you would have taken the stock, would have made you a multimillionaire in the 1800s. A multi-millionaire in the 1800s had you taken the stock and you kept it. And you didn't even have to keep it for very long before you saw that those dividends and, and the stock price skyrocket. Um, well, the value of it skyrocket. I believe a majority of these people did do that. Some of them did not. And I would like to point out, um, before I hand the mic back to you, Rob, to, to discuss this in further detail, what I would like to point out is, now this was definitely a shady practice, and I don't think you could say it was completely legal. The biggest legal legality portion of this was the fact of favorable treatment by the railroads, which was a hotly, highly contested um, topic at the time. But you have to think about, well, if the shoe was on the other foot, say it wasn't Rockefeller and say it was everyone else, would they have really been protesting and, and creating such a record? No. I mean, there's probably a few like good, like uh, virtuous men that wouldn't have taken advantage of this. But you have to think that if you were offered this deal, you would have taken it. No questions asked. So I don't think it was necessarily out of, out of fairness that these people were upset. I think it was a fact that they claimed it was about fairness, but more than likely it was just the fact that they weren't big enough to be considered. And rightly so. I don't think it was fair for anyone to do this, no matter who you are. But nonetheless, this allowed Rockefeller to end up owning pretty much all the refineries in Cleveland and within a year of a company that never conducted business. I want to take a short break to ask that if you are enjoying the show, 
please go leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you stream, and let us know what you like most about the show. Also, don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at PMindsPod, where we'll be posting content related to our subject here and other historical facts and topics that you can also discuss over on Twitter. Now, let's get back into it. Wow. So I want to break that down a little bit. When you see a character like Rockefeller in history, you really you really want to go after him for his bad business practices or his shady dealings. But what we've seen so far, especially before this last segment, is he seems to be a really genuine person just interested in making the best for himself and his family and perhaps his community. But this this development with his oil refinery business seems to be the the bad apple in the bunch. This, if you were to pick at one thing in his history that would be the shadiest, I think this would be it. Most most actually consider this to be the black eye in in Standard Oil's reputation and Rockefeller's, and. To point out, his motivation was not just to own it. He wasn't necessarily just trying to be like, I want to own it all. He was looking for efficiency to a fault. He saw how inefficient these companies were. He had capital, so he was able to use the latest technology. He wanted everyone else to be able to do that. And now he wasn't you know, insanely rich at this time. He was definitely wealthy at this point, but not insanely like cream of the crop. Um, and what he saw was he wanted to consolidate the oil industry so that the price fluctuations we talked about would be settled so that the customer not only could get cheap, cheaper prices, but also more steady prices. And you'd have a more consistent, superior product. Well, one thing you can consider by consolidating the oil industry is you could also fix prices. So you wouldn't have necessarily have different companies that would sprout up and perhaps become um, competitively successful that would uh, start a price war with you. And typically not many people win in a price war, but we've seen them throughout history, especially with the, uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, uh, 1980s and 90s with gas, how the price war really drove down the price of, uh, of uh, petroleum. But talking about Rockefeller, I, I think I think you can kind of consider him, or at least his strive for efficiency, as being a hammer, and everything in his path was a nail. Now, did he make the petroleum industry better? Of course, he did. You can't you can't really have innovation like like there was in the late 1800s and early 1900s when you have multiple competitors just trying to survive, especially on margins razor thin. So if you can kind of control an industry, especially in a a large area, you can innovate without having to worry about competition trying to undercut you. And I think that's one important takeaway 
at least from this segment. Even though his business practices were not the best, it didn't seem that anyone came out hurting from it. Because either you got cash or you got stock. And if you got stock, you, you were pretty well set. And just for reference, the 1860s dollar would equate to about $30, $35 today. So that's pretty significant. Yeah. And this this was one tactic, and, and, and what you end up seeing a lot in Rockefeller history was, you know, a, a lot of it was like, you know, he would beat down the competition until he could buy him up, and it was not predatory. Like, it was not like, I'm going to drive you out of business and you're going to starve and you're not, you're going to, you're going to lose everything. Now, I can't say that he didn't do that. Some people, um, I wouldn't say he did it intentionally. One thing that he did was if he wanted to buy a business, he would offer well above value. Like it wasn't just like, like referencing back to Elon buying Twitter up, right? Like he offered a 20% increase per share to buy the company. Almost a win-win. Yeah. Rockefeller would offer over double what the value of the of the refinery would be to people. So even though someone considered it a shitty business practice, he would try to make right by it. See, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't... And I, I use the term shady loosely. It wasn't illegal. And I wouldn't say it's immoral, because if you're a company that's inadvertently steamrolling the competition with innovation and efficiency... Um, you can't just, the other companies wouldn't have survived anyway. The cost would have been too high. Yeah, there, there's actually something very fascinating that ends up happening later on when Rockefeller tries to expand this type of 90% control over the market to overseas markets whenever Russia and, you know, they strike oil. And then um, over in the Middle East, they end up striking oil a little bit shortly after that. Um we can dive into that a little bit later in an episode, but just to reference that. Even before... So, this is going to be skip, skipping a few decades, but you're, while we're talking about competition and innovation, there was an antitrust suit that came about later in the, in the early 1900s and against Standard Oil. I would say a few, I think it was a few years or maybe even 10 years before the, the, the suit actually came up. You, once they struck oil in Texas and you saw a lot of fledgling refineries and oil industry or oil businesses come up in out of Texas. There's one that you probably heard of that I can think off the top of my head called Texaco. Oh, um, yeah. was independent of Standard Oil when it was invented. And so you saw competition that started catching up to Standard Oil. Now, granted, this was like 30, 40 years after Standard Oil was founded and being like the top dog, the top dog. But even with the control that they had, competition still ended up slow. You start seeing this competition start slowly springing up. And you mentioned price fixing earlier. The price fixing, yeah, it was price fixing. And a lot of people were like, Oh, you price fix it to make all the money. Actually the price fixing more and less was to keep competition from coming up. Now this is probably what you were referring to was he would keep the prices so low 
to where he could still turn a decent profit, but it was to the point where competition wasn't able to make a profit. Your start, your your yeah, your startup costs would be so high; it would take you years to uh, to make over that. You know the cost. Yeah. So now, obviously, I just referenced you know twenty years, thirty years in the future, but I thought it was I thought it mattered because. A lot of people think that, especially in this time period, where monopolies and control over markets were kind of running rampant. Rockefeller, even though Standard Oil owned at that point in time owned ninety percent of the oil market, or, or I guess refining market, he still ended up having competition that ended up becoming pretty fierce competition. Um, at least in, in the U.S. market. Now, overseas, he was never able to have that kind of control because you had companies like the Royal Dutch Shell Company. You may have heard of them. And uh, another company called BP, British Petroleum Company. They ended up coming along later on uh, after after Royal Dutch. So some big players. Yeah, and this was in overseas markets. And um, so you didn't have as much control as you thought you did. And this matters, but it doesn't matter in the fa- in the in the context of the antitrust suit was still something that came about later on because even though that you had competition, it wasn't necessarily that these competition was significant at that time, right? So So, stepping back outside of the competition conversation and kind of bring the conversation full circle to the question of how he managed to grow this. I mean, really focused on one major aspect, which was railroad transportation and owning of tank cars. Talked about the specific story of the South Improvement Company, which was the a very significant point, um, and I think kind of categorizes all aspects of how he was able to do that. The other side of this, which would be after he consolidated the refining industry, and refining industry almost as a whole. So the 90% is a refining industry itself. 90% of the oil refined came through Rockefeller's refineries. Now, after growing horizontally, he grew the business longitudinally, which meant that he... Okay, so he didn't necessarily invest a lot in the crude oil because searching and drilling and pulling out the crude oil was a very time-consuming, expensive business. So he never really owned, I want to say the percentage was more than like 15 or 30%. That's a pretty big gap. But of the oil production, like coming out of the ground, the oil wells, and he ended up buying up other companies like, um, so you had pipeline companies, companies that produce pipe to build pipelines. You had petroleum product companies, so like petroleum jelly and industrial greases and stuff like that. So he, outside of trying to get control over the railroad and shipping side of it, also tried to innovate by using all the materials that were byproducts of producing kerosene. Like gasoline, you may have heard of it, was used before he before people used it for cars, he used it as a source um, to produce, um, to power his plants. 
you know, being self-sufficient, use the waste materials. Other waste materials were used to make petroleum products like petroleum jelly, like we just mentioned, industrial lubricants um, for large machinery and um, other any type of other product that needed a petroleum product. And so he would buy up larger, he would buy up large companies that already produce these, these items to streamline that process. You know, if I'm producing the byproduct that you're buying to produce your product, it makes sense for me to own this company because then my cost of production goes way down. Instead of just selling you my waste product to produce this, I now own the company that is producing the product. And then I also have a larger company that can invest money in the existing company to make their systems more up to date, more efficient. So you saw him not only own the refinery, but he owned production of crude oil, refining of the crude oil, the shipping of the crude oil outside. Like he owned all the tank cars, owned ports and holding stations and distribution networks. So, a more modern, you know, to draw a contrast to modern day, there's a very popular online retailer that has done the exact same thing nearly in modern time. Rob, you want to take a guess at who that may be? I want to go ahead and guess it's not Wish. It's <laughs> probably Amazon. Yes, you'd Good be old correct. Jeff Bezos company. Yeah, now, regardless of what you think about Amazon... I think it's very fascinating if you look at Amazon. Now, I'm not an Amazon buff. I don't know their history, but I do know that Amazon makes a majority of their money from this um, entity called Amazon Web Services, which own, I think it's about 50% of all web hosting in the world. You know, we, we may end up talking about Amazon in whole later on in a different episode, but the contrast I'm drawing here is you have an online store, you own the store location, so the web hosting that hosts your platform. You streamline access to the product. Consumers can buy directly from your product. You own all the warehouses that your products ship from. And you now have a distribution network that can transfer all these packages from the warehouses to... You know, like you have warehouses in your distribution warehouses that end up shipping them out to your house. And Rockefeller did this over 100 years ago in the 1880s. He, in the 1890s, ended up having his own distribution network. He would have the refineries, and then you'd have the, 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 the depots and even locations. So... Amazon, you would say their location would be their online store. They also own Whole Foods. So Whole Foods is a brick and mortar store, not an Amazon store, but you know, Whole Foods is a grocery store. And he would actually have, you know, gas stations. And now this is obviously once gas stations made sense and service stations, he would own those. He'd also own the trucks that would ship the gas to the gas stations, would ship the petroleum products. He owned the tank cars. He owned the barges. They'd ship them overseas. The entire shebang. And it's very fascinating that we have a modern example that we can draw parallels to that has managed to do the same thing. It's almost like history is cyclical, isn't it, Jeremiah? Yeah, I think there's a famous quote about that or something, right? Yeah. So... If we take examples from the past and 
draw parallels to the to the present, we can see exactly how this came about. But one thing that people really like to villainize innovators for is their exploitation of their employees and people around them. You know, Rob, if I didn't know you, I would have not seen that comment coming. Really? No, I 100% guessed you were going to say that. (laughs) But, I mean, you honestly have to look at the fact that, like Amazon, people benefit from it. Legitimately, you can get groceries delivered to your house from Amazon. I think you can get medication delivered to your house from an Amazon affiliate. And you can get any product in the world shipped to your house in roughly two days. Now, let's not talk about Amazon. Let's talk about Rockefeller. You went from having almost a... Not a useless product, but as far as a consumer a useless product to one of the, if not the most important commodity in the world today. And you can think, um, the controversial, you know, um, mogul innovator, robber baron Rockefeller for pretty much bringing innovation in transportation. And he really, you know, Rockefeller really, set a path for how people could could do the same you know from from the from the generation to distribution and I think that's an important takeaway at least for this episode but uh, Jeremiah do you have any any last thoughts I think that with the contrast and comparisons that we have made between Rockefeller's growth of his business and Amazon and other other things one particular thing that seems to always be true no matter what industry you're in is logistics if you produce any type of product obviously there's always logistics involved and this isn't always physical logistics you're also looking at you know, web logistics in the digital age, you have digital products like ebooks, you know, um, audiobooks, um, online tutorial classes, and all these things. Those are all digital. Well, they still have logistics involved with them, they're just different. Even this podcast relies on logistics. Even this podcast, you have a whole process, and there is a different provider for each process that you have to do. And if you can start a business and and you can identify a need, you know, like growing any other business, like Rockefeller identified that there was this new market and he already had a successful business. And, I, and you have to point that out. His business was a produce commission company. This was a very common run-of-the-mill business. It wasn't like it was never heard of. It wasn't a crazy new idea. It was just a run-of-the-mill business that he was good at. And he, with a partner, or a few partners, with some capital, started a business. And they learned, and they perfected it, and they got better. And they were able to take some of that money and invest it in a different industry, a different market, that ended up being a major success later on. And so what you can understand, what you can learn from that, 
for this episode. I know I'm, I'm drawing this out a little bit, but what I think you can really pull from this is he took something, he had capital, he invested in something he didn't necessarily know everything about that seemed like a good opportunity. He applied the skills that he had learned from already starting a business to growing that industry. And what he first recognized was if I can reduce my transportation cost, my logistical cost, I can make more money as I'm paying to make this product better because you refining is not a simple process. And so they had to learn how to refine stuff and make it better and cleaner. And people needed a cheap light source and kerosene was cheap because you had a bunch of it and you could produce a bunch of it and you could produce it quickly and then you could ship it quickly and then people could receive it quickly. Right. So we can dive more into that on a different episode. Um, We got a little off topic here and there, but I think it's good to be able to draw these comparisons and understand. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of the of the episode and the, and the show in general is to be able to look at the past, look at someone that did something great, and I mean great as in the word great, not necessarily good or bad, but just a, a different. He provided a value. He provided something of value, and he exploited his skills and his and his learned skills to be able to do the best he could and it turned out to be the best anyone ever did all right Gemma, let's uh wrap this episode up so we're, this is i'm sorry you're in yeah, this is episode two and we're going to have another part and uh once again this is rob and this is jeremiah And this has been Prestigious Minds. Now, on the next episode of Prestigious Minds, episode three, we'll be diving a little bit deeper into Standard Oil and the inner workings of the business deals that Rockefeller conducted in the late 1800s where he really grew the business and go more into the antitrust suit that I mentioned earlier where Standard Oil was broken apart. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at PMindsPod, and we'll be posting fascinating facts related to our topics talked about here today and in the future. Also, if you enjoy this episode be very much appreciated if you go leave a five-star review at apple podcast spotify google podcast or anywhere you enjoy listening in the next episode we'll be diving more into rockefeller and standard oil and what he did to grow standard oil into the massive monopoly that ended up becoming Until next time, go make history with your newfound wisdom.